Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming street artist Milt Coronado, also known as Milt One. Milt's story of overcoming self-destructive behavior, dealing with the unexpected murder of his father at a young age, and ultimately finding his purpose in life to become an artist is a story you do not want to miss. I'll be joined today by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. So Milt, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Let's start at the beginning. What was your life like when you were growing up? So, so yeah, my parents met in late 70s, and then I was born in 1980. Um, I am my mother's fourth child. I am my father's first child. Uh, they moved in together, and nine months later, my sister followed, and then three years uh, after her, another sister followed. So now we are six siblings or six children um living with my parents now they they also had an abusive relationship even though my father never physically hit my mother uh he was very uh, emotionally and verbally abusive towards her uh because of all the issues we, from her first husband then uh this new relationship she had with my father um it made her seek um faith uh church and so she got involved in, with a Bible study group. And so she started studying and she became a Christian. Um, soon after, my father became a Christian as well. And then we started attending a church. And, and I say that because faith plays a big role in my life. Um, but when I was five years old, my mother died from a brain aneurysm. And then uh, my three older siblings, they went to LA. They, went, they moved in with their father. Um, my sister returned and she went to live with my aunt because it didn't go so well between the two of them and that left my father uh, with a five-year-old which was me uh, my sister who was four and then my sister who was one my father remarried and he remarried the woman that he cheated on my mother with and got pregnant a month after le- uh, leaving my mother pregnant for the last time which is why today i have two siblings that are only one month apart and so he went to mexico and married her he came to back to Chicago with her and this new little brother of mine that I grew up calling um, a bastard. I told him that my father was never his father. I told him that he wasn't my sibling. And so that created tension and animosity between my stepmom and myself, which is why she was very abusive towards me and my siblings, physically, emotionally, verbally. Um, so I grew up in that type of atmosphere. And so when I went to high school in 1994, uh, it was uh, a pretty easy um, walk-in um, sort of or a decision to get involved with the gang lifestyle. So for the first two years of high school, freshman and sophomore year, I was involved with uh, the gang activity and gang uh, affiliates and, you know, as you can imagine, all the things that they do. I wasn't heavily involved in it. Like I wasn't committing murder or anything like that, but I was partying. I was hanging around with them, uh, seeking that respect, seeking that attention because I was receiving the opposite um, that a child should receive from home. Mel, you hear a lot about young men and women who are looking for something that they're often not getting at home, whether that's love, friendship, guidance, even food sometimes. And these individuals are young and they're impressionable. 
And so you often wonder why would they want to join a gang? But usually we're not getting the full story. And sometimes these gangs are a different form of family that provide them with that love and acceptance and food and that safety even that they're not experiencing at home. Um, for you, why did you decide to join a gang? Definitely. Um, they were very, being very acceptive and very friendly and accommodating and providing the needs. And this was years before because I knew the individuals that uh, welcomed me into the gang. I knew them for two, three years prior. So it was even an easier decision to say, yeah, I'll go with them. And mind you, um, I have cousins that, older cousins that were involved in the game, gang life. And so I decided to join this gang that my friends invited me or were part of, um, which was the opposite or rivals to the gangs that my older cousins were part of. Now, I, if I wanted to join the gang, I could have easily just joined, or I wouldn't say too easily, decided to at least join the gang that were my cousins and my older brothers were part of because I was family. But I decided to join this other gang that was rivals because those were my peers. They were the friends that I knew, the ones that gave me the love, the attention, um, and that provided needs that I was seeking at the time. And what is also, um, what, what many people also think that when young individuals, especially black and brown individuals, they join the gang, they think, oh, they come from a terrible home. They don't have a father. But I had a father who loved me dearly. Um, and we were a religious family. But I was living at home with a, a mother that was abusive. And that led me into, into uh, deciding to join, join this gang. But it was actually art that helped me and that saved me. And it was my escape from that type of lifestyle. Um, I started airbrushing t-shirts when I was a junior in high school. Then I got involved with graffiti. And even though I was still committing a crime, you know, vandalizing, tagging private property or property that wasn't mine, um, it was, in my eyes, safer or better than, than gangbanging, than fighting and causing this other kind of mischief. Um, because at least I wasn't damaging people or hurting people. I was just damaging property. And not in a very severe way, but just ways that they could just buff over it, paint it over. And that was it. So my, that was my excuse. And then I graduated high school in 98. I went to the American Academy of Art. And then the year, at the beginning of my senior year in college, uh, my father was shot and killed by the same gang that I once called family uh, years prior. And it was that tragic situation in my life that made me remap my life. And so my passion for art was still there, but my, this, my, my love for community service and youth advocacy um, exploded then. And I decided I wanna make a difference in this world. I wanna make a difference for other young people so they don't have to go through the same uh, steps so they don't have to have the same lifestyle that I did, but I wanna give back. And I've been on this mission um, since then, since 2001, uh, when my father passed away. Yeah. So I know- in a nutshell, that's, that's, that's my life. So I know your father, we talked about that tragic morning when you got that call that your father had been shot. Um, you also 
you know, a few few years later had the opportunity, I believe, to talk to the individual who shot your father. Right. Um, did you process that and come to that forgiveness? Because that takes a lot of strength that I don't know if I could ever have that conversation. So how did that, how did you get to that place? So I was uh, 21 when my father passed away. Yes. And it wasn't about two or three years later that I finally got to meet or see this individual that, that, that killed my dad. Young 28-year-old um, gangbanger um, who, who killed my dad. And I saw him in, at the Cook County Courthouse. I remember uh, I went there by myself. Well, I was the only person of my family that went, but I was there uh, sitting next to our pastor. And when they called his name, and he stepped out and he's in his um, uh, handcuffs. He's in his jumpsuit. I was numb. Uh, I was numb. And I remember sitting on the right side of the courthouse or the right uh, benches and I remember there was a group of people around us because there were several cases being presented. And I was curious as to, the, as to who was the family sitting directly to my left on the opposite side of, of me. And they were quiet the entire time. And once they called his name, because again, we knew his name because of the, what the, the detectives told us, uh, they called his name out and I'm, my eyes are glued onto that door. He comes out. And as soon as he comes out, those individuals to my left started crying and started waving their hands and started uh, crying all at the same time. And I'm like, they are his family. And I got so angry. I got so angry um, because I, I just couldn't believe it. They're crying over this individual that they can at least see, talk to, come visit. Whereas I couldn't see my dad talk to him ever, uh, ever again. And so I had this, this, this vindictive feeling, this evil feeling that just came over me. And, I, and my eyes went from looking at him to then looking at the sheriff that was standing there and then looking at his gun and just wishing so much evil over this young man's life. And I remember thinking, I wish I could just grab this sheriff's gun and do unto this kid what he did to my dad. But at the same time, I felt stuck, glued or frozen onto this bench. I couldn't move. My hands were gripping um, the edge of that bench. And I'm telling myself, get up, get up, do something, say something, scream, curse him out, do something. But I couldn't. I was, I was glued. I was immobile. I couldn't move. And for years, I had this... And, and this went out because you know how they, they always like say they always prolong these, these court sessions. Uh, I kept seeing him. I kept seeing him. I kept seeing him. And it wasn't until uh, that final week where they were going to decide about his sentencing that I was able to speak some words to him from the seat uh, sitting, seating next to, to the judge. And at that point, I had already forgiven him. But I told him that God loves him, that I forgive him. And that I hope that he can find peace uh, wherever uh, he is sent off to. So that was a big jump. 
you went from I wish I could grab the sheriff's gun and end yeah. his life to There's something in between, yeah. I forgive him. Walk us through that process. Right. So that process took two, three years. Um, from the first time that I saw him, I started feeling anger again because I was just trying to find peace uh, over my father's passing. But when I saw him, which was two or three years after my father's passing, and then this whole sentencing or before the sentencing was another two or three years. Um, from the time that I first saw him, uh, I started feeling this evil emotion again. I was bitter. I was stressed. I was anxious. Mind you, I was already living by myself. So that was another stress, uh, stressful situation for myself. Um, trying to survive on my own for the first time. It was hard. Plus, whenever somebody would bring up my dad, I would think of this guy and just be angry all of the time. And then I remember seeking pastors, other spiritual leaders, friends um, who kind of, who mentored me. And they always started off saying, I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through, but you have to understand about what this is doing to you, about how the stress that I was feeling was not letting me move forward or not allowing me to receive future blessings for my life. And, and of course they, they shared some scripture with me and, and they shared a, a lot of spiritual uh, guidance with me. And, but it took my own personal decision um, to decide, okay, I need to try to forgive him because I want that peace. And just the thought of it was, was painful. And so I had to take baby steps little by little to decide, <clears throat> excuse me, that I want to forgive this guy. Um, so it was reading scripture. It was prayer. It, it was reading books. It was um, counseling as well. But what I cannot forget, what really made me physically feel a, a freedom from this was when I was at my apartment by myself. It's dark, it's cold. Um, and saying, I forgive him. Because I remember reading this book that I had at the time um, and hearing a voice. Now, for some, they may not understand this, but I, 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 it's personal to me. Um, I hate voices to say, to forgive him. And I remember having this spiritual battle, battle within because I didn't want to. I didn't want to say it. Uh, I felt like I wasn't ready to forgive him. But that voice was just getting louder and louder and the feeling was getting much more uncomfortable and stressful and anxious. And I was feeling much more frustrated and heated. And so I started saying, I forgive him. But a very low, in a very low tone, and I remember saying it again, I forgive him, I forgive him. And every time I was saying, I would, I would say it, I would say it louder and louder and louder. And I can't tell you how many times I said it, but it was several times. And the last time that I said, I forgive him, in that moment, I was screaming it. I was screaming it at the top of my lungs in my apartment by myself. Um, neighbors probably heard me and they probably got scared. 
Um, but once I said that, I literally felt this physical, um, lightweight um, thing just come over me. I felt this, this, like I was carrying this heavy burden on my back. And once I said that from the whispers to the yelling, I felt like it was just lifted off of my shoulders, lifted off of my back. And I was able to smile and I'm tearing, of course. Um, but I, I, I just, and I, and I was in shock. And it wasn't until the next time that I saw him from that time, from me saying and verbally expressing that I forgive him, that I realized, wow, I don't feel the same as I did before. And I realized how important it is to forgive him and to be prepared to forgive in the future because I felt peace, a physical, emotional, and even mental peace that just helped me and it healed me. And I, and I see the evidence uh, when I look at my siblings because they haven't had a situation like this where they forgive him. I have a sister who to this day, she still gets angry and blames God and blames this guy. Uh, and, and I see that she doesn't have peace. Um, so I see the evidence of how this really works and how important it is to forgive. And it took years, but I, I am so happy that I was able to, to be at that point to do that and then be at that point to forgive him because it wasn't just for him, but it was, it was for my peace, for my family's peace and, and for my future. The hard part I, I was though, uh, to forgive my stepmom, the, the, the woman who raised me, it was actually harder to forgive her um, than this guy because at least I didn't have to have a personal conversation with this guy. I told him in, in court, but I didn't have an intimate one-on-one -on -one, uh, personal conversations with him, but I did with my stepmom. So forgiving her was, was a lot harder. Mel, it seems like for your siblings, it took them a few more years. Even now you mentioned that your sister is still having a difficulty getting to where you are today. Um, when you were going through it, did you talk to your siblings about what you were working through? Or did you end up going through this alone and not talking to them or anyone really about your journey towards healing? This is actually, I did, I just did on my own. And the only person that, that like I said, I shared this with was, uh, was God. I felt like I couldn't share this with my siblings because one, uh, they were also suffering and going through the same pain that I was uh, differently because we all had our own different relationship with, with our dad, but we all felt that loss. We all uh, had that pain and it was still recent. So I couldn't share with them uh, for one, because of that. And two, I felt that they would be ridiculing me or get upset at me for forgiving him. I felt like they would look at me and ask, well, why would you forgive him? Why do you want to forgive him? You know what he did to our dad and how he uh, messed up our entire family? Why would you do that? So that was the second reason why I didn't want to tell them. They do know now, uh, but at the time I was scared of, of that, of, of sharing and expressing more and give them, giving them more pain and then making them angry for, for me forgiving the individual. So this was a, this was a, a, a ride that I took on myself. 
my own personal decision to, to do. How did this um, affect your community outreach? You know, we'll dive in a little bit later into the art aspect, but I know you do a lot of talking with at-risk youth and um, kind of sharing your story. How did this lead you there? So uh, like for many, um, a lot of talents and gifts and abilities and desires and passions uh, are birthed in, in in church. And for me, it was the same. Um, a couple, I would say about two years after my father passed away, I have uh, a friend who at that time asked me to, if I was willing and open to speak a little bit about my situation, what I went through, what my family went through, the loss of, of my dad. And so she was very sensitive about it when she asked me. And she, she asked, she said, you don't have to, you could say no, but I was wondering if you're willing to come to my church and speak about your experience. Um, doesn't have to be long, it could be as long as you, you want it to be. And at first I said no, but several days passed um, and then I changed my mind and I said, you know what, I will do it. And I went to the church, I, I was called up front and it was like a, a Q&A where she was just almost like an interview, I guess. We both sat up front and she just interviewed me. It was about five to seven minutes. And I felt after those five or seven minutes, um, once I came off that stage, I felt a little better. And it wasn't until months later that I realized that one way to cope or one way to, to a therapeutic way to deal with something like this is to tell your story. And it made sense to me uh, because once I came off that stage, I did feel a little bit better. Um, and as I walked out of that church, um, when the program was over, I had a young guy um, come up to me, a couple years younger than, he, than me. And he said, thank you. Thank you for sharing my story, how my story helped him. He went to something similar and he was so encouraged by what I said, by the light that he saw in me, um, that it motivated him to, to do something better with his life and to see the light um, in the midst of the darkness that he himself was, uh, was in at that time. And that gave me a smile. They put a smile on my face. That made me feel a lot uh, a lot better from sharing my story. And I was encouraged. And I realized, you know what? I should probably continue sharing my story. And I decided to share my story even then. But then people that were inviting me to different churches to share my story, um, they were tied or they had connections to people that worked in the schools. So then they would invite me to go speak at schools. And then my opportunities to share my story uh, were getting bigger and broader and broader. Then they would realize that I could do some art. And then they asked me if I could present art while I share my story um, and support it with some pictures, images, et cetera. Um, and it encouraged me. And the more I did it, the more I was able to refine my presentation and build a network of professionals uh, that would uh, help me get much more involved in other community uh, outreach as well. So it started from, from sharing my story at different churches to then schools, to then building a network of, of friends that will invite me uh, to go speak in different places. 
So, and then I would just what, tie in my, 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 my ability, my passion for art as well. What, what message do you, do you give to um, 14 year olds who are in a bad situation and are looking for a family, if you will, um, in the form of a gang or a group of friends who are not doing maybe the greatest things in the world? Okay. So I always start off with sharing my experiences and not too, and not too open because um, some may see it as, all right, he's, he's encouraging me. Oh, that sounds like fun, right? So I always share a little bit about my situation. And I'm always very honest and very real and very transparent with them because if I'm not, they're going to call BS on me and they're going to see, okay, this guy just, he doesn't believe, doesn't understand my situation. But I tell them my, my background first so they can understand that I do know what I'm talking about and that I do know what they are going through as well. And then I also present them to other individuals. And I, sometimes I bring them along with me with, with consent from their parents um, to, uh, and I introduce them to other people with similar backgrounds who are now doing positive things. So they can understand that the world that they see is so limited and so small and destructive is bigger than, than that. And these individuals can also encourage them um, to continue pushing forward. So I like to share them different testimonies and examples of lives of individuals that were where they were and they are now in a positive type of lifestyle or environment doing amazing things. I get to know them. We talk about music. Uh, we share some art together. We eat together. And I find out that young people, they love to eat. And so sharing a meal together, breaking bread together, and being honest over a, a, a table, over some food, um, is, is, is a way to really, really break down and get to know each other. So that's one thing I always do. I always buy them food. I always take them out uh, where we can start off this relationship or this rapport um, over that as well. And I just, I just introduce them to the world, to the reality of it. And some may not buy it. Some, some, some will accept the message. Do you think a big uh, help that you do with the kids that you, uh, that you work with is that you show them that you care, that you take them out to a meal? You, you reference kids like to eat, of course, but it's that time that you're spending with them uh, that maybe shows that somebody cares about them, uh, that maybe they're not getting at home or, or in their situation. Is that, if you were giving advice to other people who wanted to help kids in that situation, would that be your message? Yes. Um, and I used to teach in high school for, for five years. So, and, and I realized that, that it is, it is that it's really showing genuine and organic care for them and not just them as people, but them as unique individuals with, uh, talents, abilities, passions, and making, um, sincere notice or, sincere affirmations about those abilities of them because when you just keep it general they hear that from from adults and they're going to keep it yeah you got to say that right but when you are very specific to them about that very thing that they are are or they are about or that they like they take notice of that they take notice of that and, and i realized working with young people and i've learned it even more seeing it uh, when I was in the high school system uh, here in the city of Chicago. Yeah. So maybe we can get in a little bit to your art. 
uh, you said art got you out of being in the gang, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. learning that you had that skill. Uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about what you specialize in um, and what you do with it. So uh, I'm a very versatile artist. Like uh, I, 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 something that I learned when I was a kid, right? Because uh, working in construction with my dad, he taught me a lot, especially about business and, and marketing myself and hustling. Um, he said, don't turn on a job. Don't turn down a job. If you don't know how to do it, learn it. I'll say yes. And if you mess up, uh, do it again. Uh, I said, okay, great. So I've learned um, the, the different types of mediums uh, of art to work with. So I work with oils, I work with acrylics, watercolors, uh, as well as aerosol and airbrush, which are tools that require specific type of paint. But what I feel much more comfortable with and what I guess I would be known for is uh, aerosol, so spray paint. I started spray painting when I was a junior in high school. And this was after my friends influenced me into going out and tagging. So I've always been drawing ever since I was a kid. After my mom passed away, um, I started drawing. And that was, I guess, my escape or my way of communicating. But when I was a junior in high school, I started airbrushing t-shirts. Because I remember when I was about 11 to 12 years old, eight, actually eight, I jumped ahead. Eight years old on the 4th of July, we celebrated my eighth birthday at Six Flags Great America. And I remember I walked by and I saw these individuals in the booth airbrushing t-shirts and I was just blown away by that. And I remember telling myself, I wanna know how to do that one day. And so my, my family was already walking ahead towards, I don't know, I assume some other ride or whatever. And my father turns back, he's like, let's go. And he saw that I was really into this. And he's like, you like that? And I said, yes. I was like, yeah, one day I'm going to know how to do that. He said, great. And so we left it. And so it wasn't until I was 16 years old, junior in high school, that I was able to learn this type of art, airbrush art, and practice it. So that year, while my friends would go smoke weed, go drink, go gangbang after, after, after school, I would just walk my butt home. And I live like I live like a block away, so I was home right away. I would run home, drop my bag, run downstairs to this art studio that my father built me, and I would just practice airbrushing. And I did this for every day until I felt comfortable enough, confident enough to sell the T-shirts. And so I remember I airbrushed a portrait of Michael Jordan, and I wore it to school the next day, and everybody took notice. And so from then, I started making money, hustling, hustling. I said, I would go home, paint a T-shirt, go back to school the next day, uh, um, give it to the owner, collect my money, and pick up some more orders. And I would do this. I did this for the rest of my junior year and the rest of my senior year. And that encouraged me. That motivated me. And so the reason why I say art was my escape or it healed me, it helped me, and it saved me was because my friends who I was gangbanging with took notice of that. And so they realized that I was hanging out with them as much, that I was always painting, airbrushing, drawing, and that I had a future in their eyes. Um, we had a conversation and they just let me walk out. They gave me their blessing, they called it a blessing. So they gave me this blessing to just walk out and just concentrate on my art. But while I was doing that, I was influenced by a different crowd of, of peers 
who influenced me into doing graffiti. They saw that during the spring of my junior year. And they asked me, have you ever done graffiti? And I said, no, I never have, but I'm curious. I see the trains, I see the walls. And they're like, well, it's just a, like, it's like the letters that you do on the t-shirts, but with spray paint on the wall. All right, cool. And it wasn't the same. It's not the same. So they lied to me. Uh, but I learned it. I learned it. I remember the first time I did it, I was so hyped. I was so, I got so quickly addicted to this. And, and that's what I tell kids too, and parents. So side note, right? So many parents, teachers, uh, police officers, we, they always tell kids, stop doing it. Stop doing it. You're going to get in trouble. Stop doing it. But it's a passion. And for some, it can be an addiction. So how can you tell a young person to just stop when they have the, 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 the energy, when they have the passion to just stop completely? You can't do that. So when my father did, after he realized that I was doing all this, and I know I'm jumping ahead here, um, he bought me some pieces of plywood. And he said, don't do it uh, out there. Do it here. For street art, does somebody commission you to do street art? Uh, now they do. Uh, now they do. But before, just like every other artist that starts out there um, with, with a spray can, that is, because there's so much uh, different variety of street art and not everyone works with spray paint. But the ones that do work with spray paint started doing it uh, illegally. The majority of them. At this point, because of social media, because of so much talent out there, uh, a lot of people go from brushes on a canvas to spray cans on walls uh, because they realize that working with a spray can, it's so much quicker. You can produce your work so much quicker than by producing it with, with a paintbrush. But the majority, yes, they did start doing it um, illegally. And so we transition from doing that illegally to them being commissioned and being paid for our work. Now, not everybody. A lot of people are still very committed to do hip hop and graffiti culture um, that they still do illegals and trains and, you know, stuff like that, even in their 40s and 50s uh, years of age. Uh, but my, myself, yeah, I, I pretty much do all commission work. Can you tell whose work it is by their style? I'm sure that there are some nuances to it, but is it the style that tells you who the artist is? And Mel, what is your style? It, it's, a, it's a couple of things. For, for some, it is a character that they always do. So if you ever see a character, a type, certain type of a, a character, you will know who did it because that artist always paints that same character. Um, so that's one. Um, two is a type of uh, technique that they use when they do letters or when they paint um, an image of something or someone. Their style of technique, um, uh, the way they blend in colors, that could be a different style, or even the colors that they use. Some people stick to a very strict, small palette of colors. That's another style. Um, and others, obviously, is, is their signature. Uh, the way they write their name, that's another style. For me, is pretty much my, bl my blending of colors and portraits that I do. And that's how people know that it's, that it's my work. And it's pretty awesome to, to show it, to see that other people recognize your work. For example, the other day on Saturday, we were driving in the north side of the city. Um, I was going to church with my oldest son who turns 14 tomorrow. And I told him, oh, look at that. And I just pointed at it. It was this huge portrait that I did of Shabadoo Quinones from the movie Breaking. 
uh, I did it and I pointed and he's like, oh, that, you did that. When did you do it? And it was, it filled my heart because even my son knows my style. He knows when I did something uh, versus when someone else does it. And it's, it's pretty neat. <laughs> what is the, what is your favorite piece? I my favorite piece? That you've done in Chicago and where's wow. it? Oh, wow. Well, I can, I can name a few. One of my favorite pieces that I did was uh, one of the first portraits that I ever did, which was uh, a portrait of my father. Uh, it was my, one of my favorite because number one, it was my dad and it was therapeutic for me to paint my father and it was therapeutic for my, for my siblings to come and see the mural that I did of our father. It was therapeutic for all of us. Um, two, it was the second portrait I ever did at that scale. Um, and I was pretty proud of myself that I was successful. And three, I was proud of because the picture that I had of my dad wasn't the best. I had to really squint and really pay attention to the colors. It was kind of blurry. And I was very proud of the final uh, production, uh, but it's no longer, um, no longer standing. One of those unwritten rules of, of street art is that your mural can be easily covered by something else uh, at, at any time. So be aware of that. Uh, but one of the more recent that is still standing uh, walls that I did was of a young lady that was killed very horrifically um, in 2019 um, here in the, in, the, in the south side of Chicago. And I'm sure you guys heard the story. Her name was uh, Marlene Ochoa. She was strangled to death and then her baby was, was well, her, she, her womb was cut and her baby was pulled out of her womb. And later the, the baby died as well in the hospital. And so I did a, a mural of her and I did a mural of her baby in the arms of Jesus um, next to her portrait. And that went viral globally. And what I love the most about this story is that every time we turn on news about this, everything about this story was just negative and just sad and just brought down your spirit. And so looking at this uh, situation, knowing the story, knowing how it affected everyone, especially here in the city of Chicago, knowing how therapeutic art can be, especially painting a mural of someone can be, I decided to, to do it. We found out that this young lady passed on a Thursday, and so I painted her on Sunday. And then I wasn't even, I was halfway complete with this mural when neighbors were already coming, taking pictures, posting on social media. Uh, on my way home from finishing her portrait, I was receiving calls from the, from the news stations, from um, national uh, to local, and it was overwhelming for me. But the most important thing that I took from all this was when I met her parents, her siblings, and her grandparents, and her uncles, and her cousins at the wall for the first time. They're crying, they're hugging me, they're thanking me, and they said that they can find, they finally smiled for the first time in a long time. That it helped them. And not only did it help them, but it helped the city of Chicago and it helped people that just came to see the mural that remembered their lost loved one. That now through this, they can find hope one way or another. And it's strange to, to, to find hope in a stranger's portrait, but I couldn't understand that because I lost, I lost someone. And so that was probably the most special thing to create something for a family that lost someone and give them hope 
this way. And I felt like it's, it's my calling. It's, it's, it's what I'm meant to do. It's what I continue to do and what I will continue to do. And it's still standing. It's in the Pilsen community um, in, in Chicago. Somebody, last year, somebody tagged on it. They put a gang symbol like under her eye and people posted it. Somebody please reach out to the artist. Tell them to fix it. Please tell them to fix it. And of course, there's people talking smack and cursing out the individual who did it. And so once somebody told me about it, yes, I went over there and I, and, and I, and I, and I fixed it. And people were very happy about it. You know, that story just not only brings hope, obviously it takes a horrific situation and you spin a little bit of light into it. Um, talk to us about the non-for-profit that you are starting to build and how right. you are trying to bring that hope and that feeling into Chicago communities. Yes. So I've been doing this now for three years, this, you know, painting portraits of, of individuals who have passed away, not just on big, huge public walls, but also on canvas as well uh, and giving it to, to, to the family. Now, a lot of times it is a third party that commissions me to do it for the family. That's usually when I do it on a canvas, but when I do it on a wall, I don't charge anyone. I don't, obviously I'm not gonna charge the family and I don't try to collect money. There's been times where people have donated money from, for the paint um, or they meet me at the store so they can buy the paint so that I can do it. But I don't, I don't pursue this to pocket anything. I do it because I wanna give back to people. And again, I've been doing this for about three years, but for the past couple of months now, people have uh, instilled in me the idea of creating a nonprofit because I do this so much now that many times the money for everything, materials, gas, uh, wall preparation, um, documentation to present to the families and to the city aldermen come from, from my pocket. And so I had a few people that presented to me saying, have you ever thought about creating a nonprofit where it'll make it easier for people to donate so that you can give back to the families? Um, it crossed my mind. Uh, I've been working with nonprofits for a long time. And I was like, well, I don't know if I can, if I would be able to do that. I don't know how, first of all, and I could, I could be too busy right now. My family, my full-time job, my art stuff that I do on the side. I don't know, but it's been in my heart for a while. And it's one of those things where it's in your heart for so long, it makes you uncomfortable not doing anything about it. And so I decided to then now do something about it. So I'm pursuing uh, information about creating a nonprofit. I've been in touch with people who know about this that can help me develop my mission, my statement, and put together a board of directors so I could finally create a nonprofit organization that will help me um, help others through art, especially those who have lost uh, someone um, for whatever reason, um, not just uh, from tragic situations like my father's or Madeline, uh, but just other individuals who just lost loved one, uh, sickness, COVID, um, whatever reason it may be. And I'm excited for it. And I've shared this idea with others and uh, people are so excited for it and ready to, ready to get. So I can't wait to, uh, till this gets rolling. Yeah, I, want to, I want to encourage people who are listening to uh, follow us on social media. We're going to post uh, pictures of your work uh, as well as information on how um, people can help you uh, with your mission. Uh, so please um, do go check out our social media as well as MILTS. Um, and we look forward to uh, 
to following you through this journey and through everything that you're able to, to do. It's been, it's been really great hearing your story. Uh, I think you're ins inspiring to, to me as well as to anybody who's going to listen to us. So thank you very much uh, for sharing. For sure. We, we always end uh, with, with, with three questions. Uh, so I, I'm going to start with the first one. If you could pick a quote or a mantra that you uh, that defines your life or that you live your life by, uh, what would that be? Okay, um, I would say that my gift, my abilities, my 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 uh, talents are God's gifts to me, and what I do with it is my gift to Him. I believe we're all called for for service, and whatever way that that may be. Um, we're called to serve other people. It gives us joy when we do it. It gives us purpose. And I've been called to serve others this way and in, in, in ways using my art. And so I believe it's been given to me by God to be in, I am responsible for that gift. And what I do with it is my gift back, back to him. So I live by that. I like it. The second question we ask every guest is if you could relive any one day, what day would that be? I would live the day, the day before my father died. My father died on a Sunday morning, September 30th, 2001. Gunshot wound to the head. And that Saturday, I spent about two hours with him. Um, we, it was over lunch. It was regular conversation. It was one of those, all right, dad, whatever. I'll see you tomorrow. I could relive one day again it would be that one and I would tell him so much more um than what I did that day yeah I got chills with that answer um so my question the final one is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room what song would that be hall of fame by the script Great. I'm going to go ahead and add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go ahead and check it out and hear your theme song featured on that playlist. Milt, thank you so much for coming onto the show and talking to us about everything you've gone through. It was such an amazing conversation and so inspiring to hear about your journey towards healing, as well as all the work you do in Chicago. Please let us know next time you're commissioned to do a mural. We would love to come out and support you. Um, for listeners, we're going to be posting some of Milt's work onto our Instagram, so make sure you follow us. And I think this is only the beginning for you, and I can't wait to see what's next, as well as have you back on the show. So thank you. All right, guys. Pleasure. 